Hello, it's James Erskine here, presenter of the Rocket Fuel podcast and CEO of Rocket. Now, there is a magazine that shares the dubious distinction of being the favourite magazine of both my best friend and my mother-in-law. That magazine is called The Week. It was very close to the publisher, Dennis Publishing, and the owner of Dennis Publishing, Felix Dennis's heart. And they were really reluctant initially to not have too many brand extensions. But guess what? Five years ago, they launched The Week Junior. Now it's slightly different to The Week, but effectively it's still a news digest for children. And I wanted to find out how they created it, what the story was around it, and also what are the other things that Dennis Publishing are doing to engage with youth audiences. So we got the editor-in-chief of The Week Junior, Anna Bassi, on the phone to talk about the process of launching The Week Junior, the process of launching in America, and also creating content for children that doesn't scare them, but it does inform them about issues that are going on in the world. I'm James Erskine, presenter of the Rocket Fuel podcast, and I also am the CEO of Rocket, the youth marketing and youth content business. And on this week's Rocket Fuel, we talk to the editor-in-chief of The Week Junior, Anna Bassi. We ask about her background and how she ended up at The Week. We ask about The Week Junior and its brand extensions and other businesses that are coming from Dennis Publishing for the children's space. And finally, we ask Anna Bassi for her rocket fuel. So Anna Bassi, editor of The Week Junior, the first thing to say is thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Um, nice to meet you. We're, we're recording using Zoom, so that's the reason for perhaps some of the lapse in quality. We're not yet back in the studio, but we are towards the end, it senses, of UK lockdown, depending on, on what you think. Anna, let's start with some questions about you. Tell us about your journey. How does one get to be the editor of, of a brilliant children's magazine like <laughs> The Week Junior? Well, it's been, quite, it's been quite a long journey, I suppose, but it's mostly involved as you may not be surprised to know, it's mostly involved editing children's magazines. So I, um, I got my first job after um, studying for a postgraduate diploma in publishing uh, with a small company called Redan. Um, back in, I think it was probably 1995 or 1996, my first job was as an editorial assistant on a children's magazine, okay. um, which was Mr Men. Um, wow. So actually, so the sort of the formative years of my career were spent with Redan and working on a range of um, licensed character-based magazines for kids um, and sort of while I was there I, I think I worked there for five or six years and I sort of went from being an editorial assistant to being an editor and eventually becoming managing editor there by the time I left and from there I went to BBC Worldwide where I continued in the same sort of vein working on their educational and factual magazines for kids um, which was wonderful. I worked on uh, a magazine uh, something called Learning is Fun which was quite successful at the time which was um, it was actually designed as 
um, a homeschooling tool as much as anything else, although it was a consumer magazine and it kind of broadly covered all the areas of the national curriculum for Key Stage 1. Um, and so that was very, very interesting. And, 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 then, and then from there, I went on to work in Partworks and on other magazines with Egmont. Um, but all along the way, with a couple of small exceptions while I was working in the Partworks business, it's always been about creating content for kids. Um, so by the time I got to... Um, you know, the, the idea for the Wheat Junior was um, shared with me in the summer of 2015 when um, Karen O'Connor, who's the publisher, was looking for an editor to launch the Wheat Junior, which she'd already begun work developing. It felt like the perfect sort of, it felt like the culmination of everything that I'd done before, you know, producing stuff for kids, doing stuff that was about facts and learning and education and it all sort of came together very very nicely at that point and what what is it about kids content that motivates you because i happen to know now that you've got children now but i'm guessing at the start of your career you didn't so so why why do you see kids content as so important and why does it keep you motivated do you think well, uh, to be to be completely honest with you, I, I didn't I didn't end up working um, in children's publishing. It was a case of my first job just turning out to be the right one for me. I always knew I wanted to work in something that involved words and reading, but actually, I very quickly I very quickly came to realise that children's books and children's magazines are just they are so important you know in terms of encouraging a child to read encouraging children to engage with with words on a page um, the fact that you can you can include an awful lot of information um, that's almost a sort of subliminally learnt by children. You know, if they're reading, they're enjoying reading and they're having fun and learning at the same time, then, you know, what's not to love? And I guess the other side of it for me has always been, I, I love words and pictures together. So I'm very much about that combination. It's, not, it's never just been about the words. It's always been about the combination of words and pictures and how they combine to create an experience that a child enjoys. And throughout your career, Anna, have you had a mentor or a number of mentors? And do you mentor anybody yourself? I've never had anybody who's kind of a bit officially been a mentor to me. But I would say that... Again, going back to my very first job in children's magazine publishing, the editorial director I worked under at the time was a lady called Diana Turner. And I think um, I'd probably say I've, I've learned, I learned almost everything that I put into practice today from her. And that was all that always was about, you know, putting yourself into the shoes of a child, thinking about how a child is going to interact with a page, how they're going to feel when they see the page, um, I, you know, and, and also that kind of broader skill of putting words and pictures together in a way that makes sense and, and is really accessible. I, I would say that Diana has probably had the, the most influence on me. Um, obviously, there have been lots of other people I've worked with over years who've been, who've been equally brilliant, but I think that was probably, for me, the sort of very first person that I, that I really learned from. And what about the other side of that coin? Is, is nurturing talent something you enjoy? Has that been something that you've had the benefit of doing throughout your career? I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. I've really, I really do enjoy, I enjoy working with people. I enjoy um, bring, sort of seeing how the different people on my team, especially with the Week Junior, because it's something that we, we built from scratch, seeing how the people on my team have learnt and sort of developed and sort of evolved their own roles as, as we've progressed progress together I find that immensely satisfying 
And in the workplace, you, you've got a team around you. Is there a commonality amongst the behaviours of the team or do each of them bring a different thing? What's, what unites them and what divides them, Anna? And what do you look well, I can, for? I can tell you what work? unites us, and it's got nothing to do with work. What unites us is that we all really like Marmite. We made that... <laughs> we made, we, that's a deciding question for us when we're, when we're trying to figure out if someone's going to be a good fit or not. Um, I see. In all, yeah, in all... In seriousness, actually, I think we're probably united by a desire to, to do something really well. We are all quite different people. We come from very different publishing backgrounds, actually. So within the, within the team, I've got um, designers who've worked on magazine, you know, glossy magazines, computer magazines, as well as children's magazines, newspapers. I've got uh, our brilliant uh, managing editor, Vanessa, previously worked at Vogue. Felicity, who's the editor now, um, came to us from Newsweek. And we've obviously had a whole array of other people join us, um, you know, coming into their very first job, actually, as well. So I think we, we kind of, we have a, a, a lot of different skills between us and a lot of experience between us um, and a shared sort of a shared desire to create something that is genuinely worthwhile and enjoyed by the, by the children that read it. And here's a big question, Anna. It almost might require you to speak about yourself in the third person, although don't necessarily do that. What do you think you're known for in the workplace? What professionally do you think you're known for? Oh, that is a really difficult question. I think <laughs> that... Um, I think it's probably clear to most people who know me at work that I am passionate about what I do. I really care about what we do together as a team. I care about what we're producing and I want it to be of a very high standard. They might also say that I'm extremely pedantic, which is also true. <laughs> I think it's a quirk of the, a quirk of the, of the job, but probably, probably passionate would be the one, I hope. And whilst we're getting to know you, and, and that's the point of the first section of this this conversation, bring to life of us, I suppose, bring to life for us, I suppose, the scope of the role. Because I'm guessing you're you're part kind of cheerleader, you're part motivator, you're part wordsmith, you're part writer. I'm guessing you're part digital practitioner. I'm guessing there's lots and lots to being the editor of the Week Junior. Yeah, it is. It is quite a broad. It's quite a broad role. In fact, I'm actually now I'm editor in chief of the Week Junior. So um, we ah. launched an extension to the Week Junior a couple of years ago called Science and Nature. Um, so I've kind of I've kind of I've become uh, more of a sort of having oversight across both of those magazines, along with anything else that we're doing. Much more of a sort of I suppose it's kind of brand level to some degree, sort of thinking yeah. about what doing and making sure that everything that we produce sort of aligns with the principles that we establish when we launch the magazine in the first place um, I am yeah I mean yes I think it's a bit of sort of leading from the front and supporting from the rear as well so it's a little okay. bit of everything I work with marketing I'll be working with our PR departments I'm thinking about new ideas I'm, I'm involved with our we launched uh, the week junior in the US a few months ago so I'm involved with that as well um, it's just it's a really interesting job <laughs> I mean Actually, you've, you've preempted a question because I was going to ask one on innovation. How much of, of your role is coming up with new ideas? Where's the next science and nature coming from? Is that something that's, if you like, at your office door? Um, yes and no. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a publishing decision as well. I think between us as, a, as, a, as an editorial team, there are lots and lots and lots of really good ideas. And it's a case of 
sort of knowing where we need to focus our energy. So currently we have the Week Junior um, print magazine. We've, we've created an app. So we have a digital edition of the Week Junior as well now. Um, we have Science and Nature. We also have a puzzle magazine called The Quizler, which we launched at the beginning of this year. Um, we are always thinking about what's coming next. We launched a podcast last year. Um, so we are sort of, you know, innovation is, is kind of, is something I, I enjoy developing new projects. Um, and if I have a good idea, then I'll certainly be sharing it with the people that make decisions about where, you know, the money is spent within the company. But there's always at the same time, you know, you can, I, I would never want to innovate for the sake of innovation. It always has to be a sort of a logical progression and, and, a, and a really kind of, sensible brand extension because the last thing we'd ever want to do would be to produce something that's um you know an extension to the brand to the brands the week junior um that has been rushed out or done for the sake of it it really it all has to make sense and feel quite coherent as far as i'm concerned so i'm still here with anna who's the editor-in-chief of the week junior and as she's already identified it's more than just the week junior but why don't we focus on the week junior first did it i, I know you said the idea was around in 2015 is that when it launched as well yes we launched in november of 2015 and i believe it had been in development for about a year before that uh, and for the benefit of the listeners the week not the week junior the week junior is is almost a, a it's now a standalone magazine but it, it was given birth to by the week and the week has this very very strange phenomenon in that in my own life it's both my best friend's favorite magazine and it's my mother-in-law's magazine and it's a weekly news digest taken from lots of other publications that's what the week does but the week junior does a slightly different job doesn't it it does i mean it's the same it shares the dna of the week magazine for sure and it, and it is a, a digest of the week's news but of course it's not a collection of facts and opinions and, and reports from, from different sources we actually have to you know we actually write our own stories because of course for a child peppering an article with references to all the different newspapers or websites that we've kind of curated our facts and opinions from probably isn't going to be particularly interesting so it, it does share the dna it's a week it's a review of the week's news and we and we do it in a way that is you know like the week it is as clear and concise as it can possibly be um and it is genuinely um unbiased politically i mean we really do tread a line right down the middle because um it would be completely and utterly wrong for us to try and tell children what, what they should think and believe in terms of, of politics um but yeah and i but i guess where we differ from um the week itself is, is is actually more in terms of how it looks as as much as anything else you know we have a lot more pictures obviously it's a magazine for children sure. we want the public to look bright and cheerful and eye-catching and and it's completely designed um to try to encourage even the most reluctant of readers to kind of get stuck into a page so the lovely picture or the little fun fact that's splattered on one side of the page all of these what things are ways of kind of luring a child into the page and, and hoping that they will end up reading more deeply and learning something different and it's a success i mean we're talking i, I guess what some schools have, have been back to school some schools are breaking up for the summer holidays as we record 
record. In fact, they did last week. But you, two things on this. One, it's been, as a business model, it, it works. And two, you've seen subscriptions go up during during the coronavirus, during lockdown. I mean, what, what what is the business model? Is it newsstand sales? Is it subscriptions? Is it a combination of the two? It's mostly subscriptions. We, we, sell, we sell a small amount on newsstand, but the, the vast majority of our readers are subscribers. And you're right, we've, um, you know, we really have, we have grown steadily since, since day one. I mean, we have, we've seen a, a very kind of satisfying in, incline um, ever since 2015, and it's just gone up and up and up. But actually, I think uh, when lockdown came upon us in uh, March this year and, and the schools closed, I think a lot of parents were keen to find something that would continue to stimulate their children and you know obviously that's been a really challenging time for a lot of parents with homeschooling um, and so you know I think that has obviously kind of fed in and we now have over 93,000 subscribers which is more than 23% more subscribers that we had in March. Wow, that's incredible. So a 23% rise. And also the numbers like 93,000 subscriptions. When you hear conversations like print is dead, I mean, certain kinds of print are dying, but this, this proves that there's a future in the printed product. Yeah, completely, completely. And we were, you know, it's, it's very satisfying because I think, um, you know, when we were about to launch the magazine, I think many people were quite sceptical uh, and, and weren't convinced of our, you know, our chances of succeeding in a market that was seen to be in decline. But actually, I think what it's done is shown that if you produce something that people genuinely want to read, and it isn't, you know, a lot of children's magazines, unfortunately, now are, they are, they may be great magazines, but they are dominated by cover mounts. Um, and so often the magazine is bought for the cover mount and the magazine itself often isn't read and there are brands that can kind of go in and out of fashion as well and so a publication will, will live or die with the popularity of that brand whereas the week junior is you know it doesn't have a cover mount but it does have really really fantastic content and i think it's you know it, and it and it's a nice experience to read and i think you know there is a difference between reading on a screen and reading reading paper that that you know is under underestimated these days <laughs> Well, for parents listening, uh, they will understand immediately that just by not being screen time, you're a big tick. Do you know what I mean? So already you've got that going for you in the terms of good parenting. Um, yeah. But, but, but almost more than that, I mean, the Week Junior means quite a lot to, to your audience, to your readers, doesn't it? I mean, it, 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 it marks a, a part of their almost genetic makeup you you can tell a weak junior reader from a non-weak junior reader i would theorize oh that's a really interesting idea well i think it probably does i mean i think for those children who have been subscribing to the magazine for a while now it's become you know it's a a point in the week that they look forward to and it, and it gets delivered on a Friday so it nicely coincides with the end of the school week as well um, and I often sort of we get a lot of feedback from parents and, and, and from children and I, there's one one I can I still kind of remember reading and I, and I, and I mention it often is, was from a parent saying that when her son got home from school on a Friday and the week junior was waiting for him on the table he punched the air because he was so delighted it was there for him can I, I mean, my son who is eight has just uh, become a subscriber. He was bought it by my sister for his birthday and you got his first week perfect because he's a football enthusiast. I think Marcus Rashford was on the cover for very good reasons and suddenly yeah. he's hooked. He's completely hooked. But there's, 
you don't shy away from the big issues, do you? And, and, and it's a really nice way to explain what's going on, not least in these unprecedented times. The, the, there's a certain knack to explaining the biggest issues in the news to a, to a child audience. Yeah, there is. And you're right. I mean, we don't shy away from the big issues. And I think, you know, generally we know that children are exposed these days anyway to a lot more news than perhaps parents would ideally like them to be. But, you know, we, so we have to address we have to address some of these stories because they do affect them and they are hearing about them. And I think it's really important that if a child's going to hear about something, that they hear the facts, not just the kind of hysteria as well. So, you know, COVID is a is a you know, an obvious example of a serious, very serious situation and a story that we've had to tell over weeks and weeks and weeks to our readers. Um, and so making decisions between us as a team about how we do that has been, that has been a very interesting process because we feel, you know, we are responsible for our readers' response to the stories. We have to think about what's this going to make them feel like, you know, what will they think? Is it going to make them feel anxious? How can we mitigate that by, you know, balancing the bad news with something hopeful or positive or, or inspirational? So there is there is a formula to doing it. And it's always about, you know, what does a child, what does a child actually need to know to make sense of this story? What questions will they have about it? What context might we need to provide? And then in the case of a serious story, how do we balance this with something that will leave them feeling better? And your, your readers are kind of 8 to 11, something like that? Well, technically they're 8 to 14. I mean, that's, that's okay. where we sort of pick ourselves. But I, 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 I think the sort of vast majority of our readers are between 9 and 12. They're probably years okay. 5 and 6 in primary school. And I'm gonna, the one thing that's come up in this series of podcasts is the sometimes brilliant, sometimes slightly uneasy relationship between kind of creative and commerce. And, and I suppose in the world of press, people would talk about church and state. I mean, yeah. two things here. One is around brand safety. So I suppose, are there brands that you, you just won't touch? And the second thing is, how aware, I mean, for example, I know that you run advertorials. How aware are you of, if you like, that, that boundaries and clearly labelling what is a commercial partnership? And how do you go about, if you like, realising exactly what the brand and the advertiser wants and exactly what you want from that commercial relationship? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And, you know, there's no, there's no point in pretending that there isn't a commercial reality to this. And we've taken advertising since, since the outset. And actually, most of our advertising in the early days were, were children's book publishers. Yeah. So that wasn't a difficult decision to, um, you know, to make. That, there was no reason why we wouldn't want to promote children's books within the magazine. I mean, the type, of, the type of brand or the type of activities that we would steer clear of would be anything, obviously, that could be connected to gambling. So horse racing, for example, even though there are great family events at, um, at racetracks, we, don't, we would not publicise those within our magazine because there is a clear connection to gambling. Um, yeah. And of course, we have to be very careful um, about social media because although we know a lot of our readers are using things like Instagram, they're not really supposed to be. So we, mm. we have to be editorially about that sort of thing. And then in terms of advertising, I just, I think that, you know, we know we need, you know, advertising is, a, is an important source of revenue for our publication. Um, but I think we should never... 
um, pretend to our readers that it is anything but advertising. So although there may be, there are advertorials within the magazine and they are designed in a way to engage a child, uh, but they are clearly marked as advertisement features. So it's very, you know, there's a very sort of honest approach to doing that. So we're not pretending this is editorial. We are telling you this is sponsored or this is, this is an advertisement. Um, and I think that that is really important, actually. I think for a child to sort of have a critical understanding of, of one, you know, the distinction between advertising and editorial, but two, to understand that money, you know, money plays a part in this too. And, it, and it's what pays for the journalism and it pays for the pictures. So when yeah. looking at the Wheat Junior, do you have a weekly meeting where you're looking at what other children's magazines are up to? Do you focus on your competitors at all, Anna? Or, or is it always a laser-like focus on your own product? Um, I mean, we, on a weekly basis, the, the main focus is on the week junior itself because we're on such a tight schedule every week to produce the magazine we are we you know we do keep an eye on what is going on in the market for children's magazines and you know what might potentially be a competitor to us and we do have occasional reviews where we will look at other children's magazines to see what they're doing well and to see what you know what we might learn from what they're doing but i tend to think that our you know our competition is is way broader than just magazines you know you've got we're competing with anything that that a child might want to spend their time doing so whether that's youtube or minecraft or snapchat or reading a book or building a fort we're, we're competing with all of those things so it's our sort of you know our mission to make sure that the week junior is compelling enough to occupy at least some of that time um you mentioned if you like, children's publishers being been there since the beginning. Um, and almost that's how I certainly became aware of the Week Junior because we at Rocket work for quite a few children's publishers. Um, and you've just launched as we're starting summer, this the summer of reading. Tell us about that. Why is it important? And why is it important for, a, for the Week Junior to, to take a position on something like the summer of reading? Sure. Well, we, yeah, the Summer of Reading is, um, we've launched a, a challenge, really, for children to um, encourage them to read books over the summer. Um, and the idea behind it, really, is that everybody knows, I mean, I think it's fairly common knowledge that over the summer holidays, children quite often will slip a little bit academically. So I think, I think what's normally considered uh the first you know the first half term in, in the autumn might well be spent recapping the things that were learned in the last half term of the summer term um, so the idea really is one to really really encourage kids to read not just for the sort of academic benefit but also because you know reading for pleasure is also known to be you know beneficial in so many ways beyond just learning and, and literacy it's you know it's known to help children feel better it's good for anxiety it's good for um, encouraging traits and sort of nurturing traits like empathy and resilience in children so it's you know once a kid learns how to read and, and becomes a reader that enjoys reading or read because they want to, not just because they have to. That's something that will stay with them for the rest of their lives and really benefit them. And, and we feel very, very strongly about that. And obviously The Week Junior is a magazine that's designed to be read from cover to cover. So we want kids to read as many books as possible. But we also felt that under the circumstances that we've all lived through over the past few months, you know, lockdown, the kind of... Um, interruption to education and schooling and the fact that a lot of children even now probably won't be taking a holiday this year they're, you know they're not going to be able to get away and a book is a, is a brilliant way to escape 
the everyday and, and, and sort of ex explore another world without having to go anywhere, actually. And when you're looking at, at the Week Junior, I, I know you've mentioned that the printed product is, is almost the, the focus or, or certainly the mainstay. You mentioned that you've launched a digital app recently. How has that journey been and what does the digital app do that the printed product does, doesn't do and vice versa, I suppose? Well, the app, the app is actually a very faithful rendition of the magazine. I mean, it's not, it is, it is a sort of mobile responsive app. It's not, it's not just a PDF of the pages or anything like that, but it's the same, the, the content is the same. And yeah. we, um, so really the, the, the magazine is still the kind of primary focus. Um, we had been working on that for a little while, but when lockdown happened, again, we, we were worried about, sort of supply chains and the risk of subscribers not getting their copies through the post so we rushed through the development of the app so that we could make that available and it was available and it still is actually available um, for free to paying subscribers so it is there as a backup to the magazine itself at the moment. You've also mentioned your your role has expanded you mentioned the launch of the Quizler and Science and Nature I wanted to touch on those how does yeah if you like giving birth to another magazine science and nature you mentioned is is it two years old something like that yes it's two years old and how does how does that come about who has the idea talk us through that process because i'm fascinated well we um we had a long-running survey actually open to subscribers to the week junior in which we would ask them um you know which were the sections of the magazine that they liked most you know what could we be doing differently what would they like to see more of and so on and so forth and quite consistently our science and animals pages ranked top in in, in that survey so uh karen the publisher of the magazine quite rightly <laughs> identified that there was an opportunity there to give them more of what they wanted in another magazine so that's that's really where it came from the idea came from it's really it's reader-led and then sort of identified as, a, as, a, as an opportunity. And we probably spent about a year developing science and nature before that launched with a number of different uh, people. Um, and we have um, a wonderful editor uh, called Dan Green, who, you know, he's an absolute science bod. He really knows his stuff and he's, you know, equally passionate about creating really, really good content for kids. So he really breathes life and fire into the sort of original idea that we begun to gestate and, and that now has its own subscribers and that now is is broadly a success in making money for for dennis yeah. publishing is it yeah it, is. it absolutely is yep yep no it's it's going it's going strong and, it, and like the week junior it sort of grows month in month out it's published every four weeks so it's a different frequency and it's a slightly bigger magazine um but yes it's it's and actually they've just launched their own um summer campaign uh, a summer scavenger hunt for kids which again is kind of created with the idea of the fact that kids may not be going far away this year, but they can still explore their local environment and kind of start to look at the world in a slightly different way, even if it's just from a window or in the, in the local park. And more of a helicopter view now, if you don't mind such a nonsense turn of phrase, <laughs> but let's, uh, let's focus on the magazine market as a whole. Do you think there's, do you think there's enough out there to keep children engaged and entertained? Do you see genuine innovation? Or do you actually think because this audience are gonna grow up and if you like, grow up onto other magazines or other interests, it's important for The Week Junior, but also children's magazines more broadly, to almost straight, stay true to who they are? 
I think there's, I mean, there's certainly more than enough out there to keep kids entertained and engaged. I think there's a, there is a magazine for just about every interest, especially in the entertainment and, and sort of brand sector of children's publishing. I don't know whether all of those magazines guarantee that a child will then go on to become a lover of magazines as, as, a, as a teenager or as an adult. And I think that's where, you know, magazines like The Week Junior and perhaps others like, um, I don't know if you've come across a magazine called Akido, yeah. um, which I'm a, a big fan of. Um, there's another one called Storytime, which is independently published. I think magazines like those and like the week junior where it may not seem as though it's innovation but it is in a way because it's going back to going back to the real core and, and roots of children's publishing which is to get away from gimmicks and to get away from celebrities and sort of focus on beautiful illustrations and beautifully told stories and you know nicely designed and conceived editorial pages I um, told my son, Fred, who's eight, that I was having you on the podcast, and I said that he was allowed to ask one question. I hope that's all right. His question yeah. was, what is the best article you've ever published and why? Oh, well, I mean, that's actually quite easy to answer. And if my team listens to this podcast, they'll all cringe, and so will my boss, actually. But um, unfortunately, most of my favourite stories involve poo or toilets. Um, okay. And I know that whenever I've gone into a school to talk to the children, these have been the stories that they've responded best to. So I think one of my, my favourite stories um, concerned an enormous fossilised poo, which was... <laughs> Biggest, the biggest poo that anybody had ever seen and, and another I'm afraid also in the same fairly repulsive vein was um, learning the uh, origins of the phrase the wrong end of the stick I don't know if you have heard oh this no before. go on I just, tell, tell the audience we can't I'm, I'm so guessing this, now but uh, so I've jumped to a conclusion this, uh, this, the origins of that phrase are in uh, Roman latrine toilets, where people would sit side by side um, to use the facilities, and they would share the use of a sponge on a stick to clean themselves with after they finished doing what <laughs> they were doing. It. If you got the wrong end of the stick, you were a pretty... It would be a painful person. experience, yes, indeed. So one thing about growing the brand, The Week Junior, you, you mentioned that you've just launched in the US. Um, I'd love to know about the difference in the product in the US, but I'd love to know about the process of launching in the US as well. How's it been? How, is that a roaring success as well? I'm very pleased to say it is a roaring success. We have over 43,000 subscribers there already, um, and the magazine launched at the end of March. Again, um, fortunately and unfortunately, coinciding with the, with the lockdown in America. Um, so it, it's been quite a roller coaster, actually. So the process of developing the product, which isn't dissimilar to the magazine that we published in the UK, it's a slightly smaller format. Um, it has a couple of sections that are, it has an expanded sports section, but actually, essentially, it is the same magazine. Um, it has been a roller coaster, though, because, of course, we planned for everything that could possibly happen and possibly <laughs> go on, apart from the pandemic. And we really, yeah. you know, obviously, nobody could have seen that coming. Um, and I have to say that the team, over there 
led by their editor-in-chief, Andrea Barbalik, have been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, they, the week that they launched the magazine, the first issue went to press, was the week that everybody gets, got sent home from the office with all their belongings, laptops under their arms. They hadn't, they produced one dummy issue prior to that. So nothing was really tried and tested to the extent we would have liked it to have been at that point. Um, but they've Take, it's taken off like a rocket over there and it, it really is it really is incredible and I think we've had very very similar feedback from parents and teachers in the US to that that we get in the UK you know they see it as something that's really really useful really valuable and something that perhaps they didn't even know their children needed until they got their hands on their first copy. Is it is the wheat junior forgive the combative question Anna is it for posh kids because I listen to a bit of radio for I'm you know I'm, I'm broadly what some people would would describe as smug metropolitan elite and my son loves the weak junior are there stats to say it's loved by by kids of of all different demographics i would like to think that it is i don't have those stats to hand actually but i you know it is no it is to answer your question straight it isn't a magazine for posh kids it's a magazine for all kids um i think when we launched because of the connection to the week which is you know it is a kind of staunch middle class publication um we actually thought that most of our readers would be the children of weak readers but as it turns out only quite a small proportion of our readers are the children of weak readers we we have readers that have come to us through word of mouth because they stumbled across it in a shop because a teacher sort of gave it to a child to take home so our, you know it genuinely is a magazine for all, for all children so the last section of our conversation, I'm still with Anna, Anna Bassey, who's the editor-in-chief of The Week Junior, is to kind of get Anna's rocket fuel, some takeaways, some actionable insights that our audience of people that work in youth marketing, a bit of tech, a bit of media can take away and apply to their daily professional lives. So no pressure, Anna, but here we go, some big questions. What do you know about young audiences? Well, I know what they care about because they tell us. Um, I know that they are passionate about the environment. I know that they are activists. I think there's a lot of talk these days about Generation Alpha and how different they are to, to previous generations. So Generation Alpha, the oldest of that cohort will just about be turning 10 at the moment. And they are kind of as a group seen to be a lot more vocal um, and sort of confident in expressing how they feel about things and really, really, really wanting to act uh, for good, for change as well. So people like Greta Thunberg are role models and, you know, inspirations to them. But equally, they admire somebody like David Attenborough for his work around the environment. I think they're very, um, they care about other people. They believe in equality. They believe in justice. And they, they, they set great store by taking collective responsibility for solving the world's problems as well. I think they're really, you know, children are really fascinating and I think they are often underestimated. What do you think has changed about young audiences and what do you think will change next? I think that, um, I guess over the past 10 to 15 years or so, the biggest change has obviously been access to the internet and access to such a, you know, vast um, trove of, of knowledge and information, some, some of it unfiltered, obviously, and some of it not right. But I think that's, that's had a huge impact on children and the sort of questions that they will ask and what they know about, you know, the sort of subjects that maybe parents 
would previously have shielded them from. They, they know a lot more about these days and they have a lot more questions about. But I think that the defining characteristic um, really right now, well, there isn't a defining characteristic, but I think it might define how children behave going forwards will be what we've all just gone through and are still going through with COVID-19. And I think that's going to be quite interesting because children are, you know, they'll have had very different experiences you know, in terms of how they cope at home, what sort of interruption there has been to their education. Um, you know, some kids, you know, there's plenty of research already to show that mm. many children are feeling quite anxious, but others actually are quite content as well. They've quite enjoyed spending this time cocooned at home with their families. Some kids have had, you know, proper full-time homeschooling. Others have been left to their own devices necessarily if the parents are working. So I think, I think it's, it's going to be, it's quite difficult to say what's coming next. And I think that it really depends on what happens in September, actually. I think that's such a really good point that we're right in amongst the most defining thing in most children's lives. I mean, we're actually in a unprecedented times for everybody. That's the one challenge I've had as being a parent is trying to explain without alarming my children that nothing like this has ever happened before, that this is yeah. absolutely game changing. And that there's a bit of me in, in I think both my eight and my six year old that thinks this might happen every four years, like an Olympics. It's like, no, this is, this is once in a, yeah, once in a hundred years, a hundred odds. So it's, yeah. it's very, very, and, and the other thing that you said, that's absolutely true. We as a business rocket, we were commissioned by the children's media conference to create a film about how kids are feeling in lockdown and the exactly as you've identified the varying array of emotions i mean some are laughing some are saying their parents are rubbish teachers <laughs> others are saying they really miss their friends do you know it's brought out a whole yeah. kind of cacophony of different emotions i think um the other thing that's actually the other point of that is i think a lot of children have actually realized how important school is to them as well so the kids yeah. that the previous complain about going to school actually want to go to school they miss their yes. friends and their teachers they miss the structure in in terms of when people effectively communicate with children which brands and, and don't worry i won't ask you to name names which brands or media organizations do you think get it right and which brands get it wrong i think when it comes to communicating with children and i'm, I'm not going to pick out any specific examples but i think the brands i didn't think it, you would <laughs> <laughs> the brands that get it right are the ones who who take their who take children seriously, actually, who kind of really think about what they're interested in and what they care about. The ones that get it wrong are the ones that just sort of scream and shout at them, I think. And, and I think going forwards, the ones that get it wrong will be those that continue to um, market themselves on the basis of, of gender, actually. So, you know, there's been a big move over the past couple of years, um, certainly in, in nice middle-class clothing stores like John Lewis, to get away from clothes for girls and clothes for boys there are clothes yeah. that you know boys and girls can wear and why should they be different so I think that will become increasingly important as time goes on forgive me bold question and you, you you can swerve it if you want do you think that's true of media as well because I know that the week junior is most certainly a, a magazine for both genders but actually outside of the week junior science and nature some of the others that you mentioned previously there is a kind of gender divide if not necessarily said on the title although sometimes it is it's very much you know slime for boys the color pink for girls do you think there's yeah. a problem there I personally think that's a problem. Um, I, more and more when I speak to kids and, you know, my own kids and their friends and so on, I, 
certainly get the feeling from girls that they are quite tired of being defined by the colour pink and things being sparkly. Um, I, it's a difficult one though, isn't it? Because it obviously is a formula that works for those brands at the moment. Um, and, you know, they are successful to some degree. Um, but I, I would like to see a future where it's much more that the kind of the, the, the genres are not, they're much more about interests and less about gender. So this is a magazine for a child that loves sport or a child that loves animals or a child, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a girl who likes pink things or a boy who likes doing experiments. Um, I'm with you. But yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is, definitely. Anna, we, we've spoken for about 45 minutes. Um, I've really enjoyed our chat. If, if either is there one takeaway for everybody listening that you'd want people to walk away with and keep that one salient thought in their mind? Or is there something that I haven't covered that you wish you could say and, and, and say? What's, what's the one key takeaway in your mind? The one key takeaway for me is to, to anybody who's trying to produce anything for children is take, take those children seriously and don't underestimate how smart and how critical they actually are. Really nice note to leave it on. Anna Bassey, uh, Editor-in-Chief of The Week Genia. Thank you so much. Um, if indeed you want people to find uh, you on social media or you'd rather people uh, from brands that wanted to get in touch with The Week Junior, um, where should people go? Where can people find you on social media? On social media, if they want to find The Week Junior on social media, it's simply at The Week Junior on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, if they want to contact the editorial team, it's hello at theweekjunior.co.uk. Anna, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you. That was Anna Bassi. She's the editor-in-chief of The Week Junior. I thought she came across really well. The Week Junior is a fascinating product in that it's profitable, it makes money, and it's a print product for children. So it shows that print can work when you've got the right audience. Be sure to tune into next week's Rocket Fuel. And if in the meantime you've got any thoughts, you can find me at James Erskine on Twitter. You can find Rocket on Twitter at We Are Rocket HQ. And uh, give us a nice review, share the podcast, and see you for next week's Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.